Hi, I'm Sandy Toxvig again. You're listening to the Guardian's Children's Books Podcast. And I'm going to give you a very short reading from my new book, A Slice of the Moon. It's set in 1846 in Ireland. Before the harvest, Dar and I would often sit by our field. It was a special time, just for the two of us. In most families, it was the oldest boy who was supposed to take an interest in farming, but Henry didn't care about it. He was always off out. Beatrice didn't like the dirt, and Toby was too little. I was glad. It left me alone with Dar, and I loved it. I think I believed then that I would one day grow up to be a farmer and work the land with my father. The fact that I was a girl was not going to stop me. We would sit on the ground and look out at row after row of the bushy plants which the whole family had helped to lay in the earth. Dar would put a finger to his smile and say, Now, Slim, shall we sit quiet and see if we can hear the little beauties growing? And we'd tip our heads to the ground to listen. Then he would laugh and tell a story. So, there was a man called Sir Walter Raleigh, who, like any sensible man, lived in Ireland. Uh, He lived in a place called Yagal. Have you been? I asked. Dar shook his head. No, but I hear it's by the sea and very beautiful. I should like to see the sea, I declared, even though I had no idea what that might look like. You, my lovely Slim, want to see everything, and that is a wonderful thing. But I agree, he smiled. To see the sea would be a particular marvel. Sir Walter saw the sea many times, for he was what you call an explorer. Da said the word as if it were about the best thing a person could be. Explorer, he repeated, just for the sound of it. A man who travelled the world to places no one else had ever seen and brought back wonders. Well, wonder of wonders, Sir Walter brought back the potato from America. No one in all the land had ever seen one before. So what was he going to do with this marvel? Eat it, I suggested. Of course, but first he took it to show the Queen of England. I mean, I've never met a Queen, but I imagine they should like the sight of a potato. And if you had the chance to show her such a new thing, well, why wouldn't you? Well, the Queen, who was called Elizabeth, thought it was a marvel. What a thing was the potato. What do you do with it? she asked Sir Walter. You eat it, he replied. So she called for her cook. Did she have many? Oh, hundreds, I would imagine, and told them to prepare this incredible new food. But the cooks had never seen a potato before. So they looked at it for a long time and then, do you know what fool thing they did? I shook my head. They threw away. The actual potato. I gasped. Da held up his hands in horror. I know, they got rid of what they thought was just a brown, lumpy bit covered in soil and they boiled the leaves instead. Then they served these to Her Majesty and all the fine lords and ladies she asked in for dinner. The leaves of the great potato are poisonous and it doesn't matter how grand you are, we'll make you sick. All of those fancy people in their fancy clothes fell down sick, even the Queen. And as she lay there, pale and I suspect a tiny bit annoyed, Ta fell backwards, coughing and pretending to be the sick queen. She banned the potato from the court. He laughed and sat up again. We, on the other hand, Slim, are more sensible and eat the brown lumpy bit. We may have no jewels, but we've a heap of common sense, my lovely girl, to keep us warm. Ma laughed as she came up behind us. If I had a penny for every time you've shown common sense, Patrick Hannigan, I'd be a very poor woman indeed. 
Dar stood up laughing too. He grabbed Ma round the waist and kissed her soundly. And that is the God's honest truth, my beautiful wife. I'm little used to you, but you have my heart. And that will do me, replied Ma with a smile. Harvest time was when the potatoes in the ground were ready. Then everything in the village stopped while we all gathered them in. I don't know what you have for your meal, so it may be hard to imagine, but the potato was everything to us. I can't think of a meal we had that didn't have a potato in it. We loved them, and they kept us going. On the big day that we were to dig them, Dar organised a parade for the potato. Uncle Aidan led the way, playing his fiddle while Dar joined in on a wooden flute. We all marched behind them, singing and carrying on. Everywhere in the village you could see people smiling. Uncle Aidan's wife, Ema, made special biscuits for the children, and even though there was work to do, the day felt like a holiday. There were no shops to buy food where we lived. We only had the potatoes, a little flour and milk, but soon we would have enough food to see us through the winter. Dar was singing as he carefully put down his flute and Ma handed him a small trowel. He smiled at us all, then got down on his knees to dig the first shovelful of soil out of the way. We all held our breath, waiting to see the first potato as Dar sang his heart out. It took me a moment to realise what was happening. First the song died on Dar's lips, and then Uncle Aidan stopped playing. He stood with the fiddle hanging down by his side. I had dropped down onto my hands and knees getting ready to dig, but I remember stopping there and then, for I knew that something was wrong. Ma gave a little cry and put her hand to her face as Dar pulled a potato from the ground. This was not the brown, fat food we were waiting for. The thing Dar held in his hand was black and rotten. Oh, dear God, Peggy. Look at them, he whispered, hardly able to speak. A strange disease had come to our field, to our potatoes. Instead of coming out of the ground hard, these potatoes were soggy and they stank. I knew we couldn't eat them. Ma reached out and put her hand on Dar's shoulder, which had begun to shake. It'll be all right, she soothed. We'll manage. You mustn't worry. But as she spoke, all around us... The women wept, the men cursed, and even the youngest amongst us knew it was a disaster. Well, things don't get much better for the Hannigan no. family, do they? No. Um, and they have to flee Ireland to... to make their fortune in the new world and they have a perilous seven-week boat journey when which tragedy strikes i'm saying no more than that um but when they get to new york is their future all they imagined it would be um you'll have to read the book to find out but i have some questions here from guardian children's book site members Great. who um have had early sight of the book and Firstly, the, the question that all of them have is, why have you chosen to set your book at this time, the time of the Irish potato famine? So I like history, and I think it's important that we pay attention. If we pay attention to history, uh, maybe things that have happened in the past that were not good, maybe we can be aware of them not happening again. So I wrote a book called Hitler's Canary, which was about prejudice, and it was about the escape of the Jewish people from Denmark uh, during the Second World War. And I 
used to go around schools and talk about prejudice and how maybe uh, it's bad to just decide you don't like somebody for no particular uh, reason. Uh, the story uh, of the potato famine in Ireland is one of those stories that I was very struck by. What's extraordinary about it, um, about a million people died in Ireland because the potato failed, but they didn't need to. There was plenty of food in Ireland. Unfortunately, all of that food was being sent to England for the English people to eat. It was one of the most appalling uh, destructions of a people uh, in the world. I'm also very interested in um, people who survive against the odds. Uh, so this period of time, uh, a million people died, but also a million people left and made their lives uh, in America uh, and in Canada and in Australia. Uh, well, even when you go to America now, there are lots of Irish names and lots of Irish places. Um, so it was yet another story in which I thought, actually, we should pay attention to this history. How we treat people, other people that we don't know. Um, if anybody's been watching the news and seeing the terrible lot of refugees who have nowhere to go, history repeats itself. Uh, these are people who don't have food. This is a kind of another telling of what happened in 1846 and, and the next four years after that from Ireland, people escaping to another country. Hmm. It's very hard to read the description of the, the terrible boat journey they have, to read that at the moment and not think yeah. of those refugees crossing the sea. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and people died. The ships to America in particular uh, from Ireland were known as the coffin ships because of the phenomenal number of people who died on board got sick because there wasn't proper water and proper food and the conditions were very small, uh, people living uh, in terrible, tight conditions. And so one person got sick, then lots of people got sick, particularly the women and the children. You, you describe whole families sleeping on one small berth, mm. which is hard to imagine. No, I mean, it was tiny. Uh, you know, imagine the most crushed place you've ever sleep, slept and then imagine four or five of your family sleeping with you. Uh, so, And the, the ship's captains, on the whole, didn't really care. They were just making money. Mm. One of our readers, Becky, says that um, it's, you, you don't have, find many authors choosing this period of, of history to write about, particularly in children's fiction. As you've described it, it's, it's so fascinating. It's, it's got everything in it, and yet not many children's writers choose it. Why, why do you think that is, she wants to know? Well, I think children on the whole disappear a lot in history. I remember um, going to the British Museum and discovering amongst all the various Egyptian uh, artefacts some toys and I thought, oh, how wonderful. I had forgotten about Egyptian children. I had forgotten that they were there. And uh, we talk uh, often about uh, terrible hardships that uh, people endured. Um, and we forget how awful it must have been for the kids. So I try where I can to think about that. Uh, so Hitler's Canary is, uh, is around a, a small boy about the same age as uh, the girl in uh, in A Slice of the Moon, uh, about 11 years old. Um, and it's a time, I think, when you're not really a small child anymore, but you're not quite a teenager either, but you have some idea about the world. It's a time when I think you're awake to the fact that not everybody's nice and that the world isn't always a good place. And how you struggle with that, I think, is really interesting. So I love this period of history. I love Ireland. Um, I have some family connections with Ireland. And I grew up in New York, so it's a, it's a story that resonates for me. Um, because I, I know a great deal about American history. And your descriptions of New York are fantastic from that time. Well, what people don't realise, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of the uh, things from the Wild West, cowboy movies, that kind of thing, and we have an image of the covered wagon going across the Wild West and there were buffalo and uh, Native Americans and so on. What we don't realise, it's exactly the same period of history. It's the same year that New York has got 
department stores and plate glass windows and uh, omnibuses and paved streets. Not not omnibuses with engines, but with horses. But nevertheless, they're beginning to get that hustle and bustle of a big, fantastic American city. And it isn't later than the covered wagons. It's exactly the same time. So there's a there's a book two. This one takes us from uh, Ireland to New York, and book two is going to be from New York to Oregon, which I'm in the middle of writing now. That was going to be one of my later questions. What happens next? Because yeah. you, you feel there there has to be another story, and it oh, has uh, to cover Oregon. They have a lot to do. Right. Um, moving on to the characters, uh, Savannah asks whether you find that your theatre background helps when creating characters for your books. Um, and I also would love to know more about how you developed um, Slim because she's just such a fab character. Yeah, that's a really great question, actually, um, because there's no question that when I'm writing, I imagine it in my mind. It's almost like a film playing out uh, in your head and you can almost hear them talking to each other and I absolutely picture it. Uh, so in a, a bit like a set uh, designer might do, I look for original drawings, it's too early for photographs, but original drawings um, of the time and paintings to try and get a feel of it, to try and get some sense. And that would be the same as a set designer deciding that the, the stage need to look in a particular way. Um, and then I will look at uh, drawings of, of the people. There are a few early photographs. Um, and actually pick out a face that I think, oh, that, that, one, that one looks like Mar or that one looks like... Uh, Dara. And in fact, um, rather hilariously, somebody gave me a little set of uh, miniature figures and a covered wagon and a horse and, and a Native American and all these things. And I have it on my desk. And uh, we just moved house. And the uh, figure that represents the father, Dar, who is, is only about four inches tall, is a little plastic figure. For some reason, uh, he didn't get kept with the rest of the set. And I've been finding him round the house looking at me. <laughs> so there's a sort of slightly theatrical thing that I feel that Dar is endlessly waiting for me to finish the story. Uh, so there's no question that, yeah, absolutely the theatre thing makes a difference. Maybe he's worried about what you're going to do to him in book two. Yeah, maybe there's some concern. I can be a bit, I can be a bit rough. He hasn't frankly. had a great time in book one. No, he's say. had a tough time. And um, the character Slim Hannigan, um, when I was a child, my father told stories about a, a character called Slim Hannigan. I have to say, when my dad told me these stories, uh, it was a, a sheriff and it was a man. But I always liked the name. Uh, and so I thought there probably aren't enough girls who are at the centre and heart of a good adventure story. So it was time. Uh, and who knows, she might grow up to be a sheriff. And there you are. My father was just mistaken about it being a boy. Hmm. It's actually a girl. Who knows? That's very likely, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Nicely leads on to a question from Becky, which involves your father in some way. Uh, you were born in Copenhagen mm. and you have Danish family heritage. Would you ever consider looking at your own family history and using the things you found out about your own family to create a story? Uh, well, Hitler's Canary, uh, which I mentioned, which is the story of the escape of the Jews uh, in the Second World War, I'm sure lots of uh, people listening will have been told the terrible story of what happened uh, about uh, many uh, Jewish people and other people as well um, being placed uh, in concentration camps. Denmark is the only country in the world that managed to save 96% uh, of its Jewish population and it was done by ordinary members of the public uh, and it was done by members of my family and my father at the time was an 11 year old boy and the story that I tell in Hitler's Canary is the story of my family, my father and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles so uh, in that sense uh, I suppose I have already 
used it. Um, and my American background growing up in America, my father was a journalist and we traveled. He didn't really believe in school very much. So we traveled all the time with my dad. So the idea of journeying across America is something I have done many times. Uh, so I suppose in a way it's harnessing some of that uh, original stuff from my life. Uh, so I'm not unfamiliar with the journey, for example, from New York to Oregon. Although it would be very different. Yes, not in a covered wagon, <laughs> in a rather comfortable car. Yeah. Which leads me on to Chloe, who asks, do you have any tips for someone who wants to write historical fiction? Yeah. Um, the first thing is, what I think about writing is it's a bit like piano practice or violin practice or anything that you want to get good at. You have to do it every day. And it sort of doesn't matter what you write. It matters that you give it a go. So there are all sorts of exercises that people can do. It's your life, whoever you are, is unique. You, and your life experience, nobody else is going to have exactly that same experience. And so it's a lovely thing just, for example, to write down what does it feel like to be in a room, maybe maybe you're lucky enough to have your own bedroom, maybe you have to share with um, with uh, other people. What does it feel like to be you in that room? Uh, because that's actually how it starts. Um, and then in terms of uh, history, pick a period of history that interests you. And then spend your time going, I wonder what that was like. I wonder what it was like to be there. I'd love to know what it was like to be a child in the court of Henry VIII, for example. What an extraordinary thing. And uh, seeing things through the eyes of ch children are often unnoticed. Um, people don't pay as much attention to them. Adults don't pay as much attention to them as adults. They make a mistake, I think, um, but that's the case. And so uh, quite often children can observe things that the adults have overlooked. Um, so what you have to do is find the period of history that you really like, um, learn lots of detail. I think detail is really important. What did they eat? What did it smell like? What did they wear? Um, and, and then try and imagine yourself there. Uh, and it's a, you know what you'll love doing it. It doesn't. It's for me. It's not really about uh, getting a book published. It's it's about um, the joy of getting lost in another world that you've created. And is that joy the joy of doing the research and finding out that detail, or is it the, the joy of imagination, or or a mixture of? It's the a two? mixture of the both. And uh, I, I'm dreadful for uh, being unbelievably picky about the pieces of information. My editor's always saying it's enough now, Sandy. Um, but there was a particular peer. Uh, in New York where the boat left from uh, to take people away and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it and it drove me nearly insane. I wanted to know, so the piers in New York, they're all numbered and I wanted to know exactly what number it was. It doesn't really matter for the story. I could have just said such and such a pier. Um, and I finally found it after several months as a footnote in a book that I had not originally intended to read. And I think I cried. I was so excited. So when it says... Uh, peer number two in there, which is entirely that. correct. So that pleases me. <laughs> Chloe also wants to know if you have any writing rituals. Did you have to listen to any particular music to write this book or write at any particular time of the day? Gosh, that's a great question. I'm a great one. I like to get up early. I'm, a, I'm an early bird. Um, and uh, I don't know if I should confess this, but I will anyway. Um, one of the things that I have on my computer is a is a thing where you can make any photograph into a jigsaw puzzle. And you can make the jigsaw puzzles more or less complicated. And so uh, in order to concentrate my mind and stop thinking about my kids and what they need or stop worrying about what food we're going to have for dinner or all the other things that um, working mums uh, worry about, um, I do about 10 minutes of a jigsaw puzzle 
um, before I start writing, just as a way of closing down all those other thoughts in my head. Uh, I uh, have no problem um, with getting on. With, I work very hard, and that's because I've got four million other things I've got to do as well. So the best thing uh, is to be a fantastically busy mum, and that will focus your attention on your writing, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> So, I, I, yeah, I love it. I have a, a shed in the garden. It is honestly just a shed. And I leave the house, I go to work, 10 minutes of jigsaw puzzles, and then I'm off and running. Then you switch the internet off. Cause that's, I, that's I don't need thing. it. I do, it doesn't worry me. I don't, I'm not a person who can easily be distracted. In fact, to the point that my family will quite often come out and say, Mum, have you been excused this morning? Because, and then I suddenly realise I'm desperate for a wee. Because <laughs> I've been so focused. <laughs> I've been so focused on potatoes or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> so if there's a sense of anxiety... Yes, you can hear it. You can almost hear it in the book. There's a moment when you think, oh, she must have been absolutely gagging at that point. <laughs> Abrupt chapter end. <laughs> and then finally, a question from Becky, which is that you, you've written books for both adults and children. Yeah. She wants to know, which do you prefer writing or do you love, love writing for both because you can explore different themes? Yeah, I like, I like, I like all writing. Be honest, I, I enjoy it. It's um, it's it's the thing. I do lots of different things. Uh, I do work on telly and on radio and things. It's the thing I like doing best. Um, I have to say, I love, love, love doing events for kids in schools and um, at various sort of festivals and that kind of thing because you get asked the best questions because you get asked the questions you weren't expecting. Those questions have been absolutely brilliant, um, and I think it's it's good to try and explain yourself. But the, but the most important thing is that I want to make people feel excited about the idea of telling a story and know that somewhere in your family there's a story that hasn't been told. And maybe it's a grandparent or a, or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle. There's a story in the family that nobody's told yet. And maybe you should be the one to tell it. So what I think is I want to encourage people to say, isn't it fun? It's so much fun to try and take people along with you in your imagination. Uh, so if I do anything, it's to encourage other people to try and tell their own stories. Thank you very much. Can I just thank everybody who sent the questions and, and you for being so nice to me? Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.